You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. I hope everybody is having a friggin' fantastic Tuesday so far. Um, I know a lot of you guys download this uh, either before you go to bed or right when you wake up in the morning, so your Tuesday really may not have started yet, but uh, I've been up for a while editing this, and uh, I apologize I didn't get this episode, you know, a podcast out on Monday like I typically do, but I had a guy uh, have to reschedule at the last minute on uh, Sunday night, so we didn't get one out on uh, Monday, but I made up for it today. And uh, we got a really kick-ass podcast today. And um, one thing that I am becoming more and more and more interested with is Western hunting. Um, the adventure, the, um, you know, going in deep, you know, not, you know, knowing that your truck is not, you know, two, two, three hundred yards away from you or a mile away from you. Um, just the whole idea of Western hunting uh, has always kind of been interesting to me, but ever since I did it, uh, last year and the year before it is now, it, it's in my mind all the time, just like uh, Midwest whitetail hunting is in my mind all the time. So I am, uh, I'm always, you know, looking online, looking at, uh, you know, places to hunt, um, making contacts, researching public ground and zones in different States. And, uh, you know, uh, just really falling in love, if anything, with the idea of getting out there and, you know, having the potential to take like a mule deer or an antelope or, uh, even a whitetail in a different state and even an elk. So, um, so next year I know I'm going out there at least for an elk hunt. I might make it uh, a two trip, uh, come home for a week and then head back out there either to do an antelope hunt or, uh, uh, a mule deer hunt in Nebraska, but, uh, you know, that's a long ways away. And the reason I'm bringing this up is we have a three Pete, a guy who's been on the show three times now. Uh, and his name is Ben Gatoramson and, uh, he's from Bozeman, Montana, and he's had one hell of a year so far this year. He's killed an antelope and an elk, and it's not even October yet. Uh, he still has a lot of hunting left to do another elk, 
He, I think he's going to do some mule deer and whitetail hunting later in the season as well. But uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm jealous of the guy. He uh, living where he lives and being able to chase the animals that he chases. But and, and we're going to hear we're going to hear from him really soon. But before we get into uh, this podcast with Ben. Matt Klein from Exodus Trail Cameras talks a little bit about what causes trail cameras to fail. Well, there are a plethora of reasons uh, why trail cameras typically fail. But if I had to pick just one, it's water. And I think most of us could probably, you know, say that that's common sense. Moisture and water are the number one enemy of trail cameras. And the way that a lot of cameras are built these days um, they're not made proficiently to keep water out. And that's something that we noticed right off the bat when we started designing the Exodus lift was, you know, we were, we were testing all these cameras on the market and, and realizing that so many of them were, were basically made to allow water in. And, and, you know, I don't know if they were designed that way or if it just was a poor design or whatever, but, that's essentially what was making so many of these cameras fail. You have to think about a a product that's sitting on a tree 365 days a year, um, through all of the spring showers, through, you know, um, the freeze and thaw of winter and all of these things that most of our consumer electronics don't have to go through. And it's pretty easy to see that that's the biggest reason why there are a lot of things that we can do to make that not an issue. But typically when you're fighting for price and, and to become the best, you know, price point product, that's hard to do. And I think that's where most of these cameras are falling short. I know you guys hear this a lot. Uh, you hear these commercials a lot. And probably by now, if I had to guess, you're, uh, you're zipping through them, maybe hitting that fast forward 30 seconds button a couple times. But uh, honestly, guys, go check out the trail camera. Um, it's, you know, go to their website exodusoutdoorgear.com read up on it read up up on all the specs and then also on everything you know uh, everything else that they offer as far as you know their warranty and uh, their feth their feth and damage uh, policy pretty pretty, uh, unique things that no other trail camera company is currently doing Uh, they're also direct to consumers so um, I've talked about that before but if you do decide to go to the website Enter the code nine fingers. That's the number nine followed by the word fingers when you do place an order and you will receive $20 off of your order. So uh, go ahead and do that. And uh, now I'm done talking. Commercials are over. So let's get into today's podcast with Ben Gatormson on his 2016 elk and antelope season. All right, on the phone with me now for the third time is Ben Gatormson, all the way out west. How's it going today, Ben? Doing good, Dan. How are you? It's uh, going good, and it uh, it seems that based off the pictures I see on social media, you're having a pretty good year. Yeah, no, I'm. Things have uh, things have not treated me poorly at all. Um, I can't. Uh, I can't say that uh, you know the opportunity we have out west is 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 really good and i think uh i'm starting to you know just kind of you know make things happen and you know i mean obviously time spent in my eyes is is the biggest testament to success but um being in the right place at the right time and 
getting those last couple details figured out right before the moment of truth are always important too. So I think it's a combination of a little bit of experience and then, uh, you know, being where I am. So, right. Right. So, but, but that's not the only thing that you kind of got going on. It seems like you've been busy other places too. Yep. No, it's, uh, I had a job change this summer. Um, and I'm kind of all over the place with that. I'm, Working in the archery industry still with uh, with a couple companies, uh, Stokerized Stabilizers, um, and also uh, Heads Up Decoy. And I think you've you've had yep. uh, from Heads Up on before. Uh, I'm a huge fan of uh, those products. They're so much fun to hunt with. And then I'm also working for uh, a couple uh, industry notables that uh, you know just on the field marketing side of things. So, um, so I'm yeah, I've got a lot of irons in the fire and. Uh, you know, through, you know, in that, you know, it's always nerve wracking when you're, when you're coming down with, you know, new employment and stuff like that. And it definitely affected my summer and the amount of time that I had to spend scouting and, 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 uh, and, and everything else. I mean, last, last summer, right before fall, I mean, it was every weekend I spent, you know, out looking, you know, finding animals, finding, you know, and, you know, finding ways to, to hunt areas, you know, I mean, a lot of people don't realize how much scouting, you know, how important that is. And a lot of people think, well, the, the bell dings the, the day that the season opens. And, uh, I feel like the, the most successful hunters out there have all the details figured out when that ding happens for the season opener. So, right. So, um, remind the listeners again, where you, where you're from, where you're, you know, where you're uh, currently living. I live in Bozeman, Bozeman, Montana. Um, okay. I've moved out here. I've been out here for about 10 years. So, so you're from the land of plenty. Yes. Perfect. As far as Perfect. hunting opportunity goes, um, and you know, trout fishing and stuff like that. I mean, any, any real outdoor recreation, summer, winter, spring, fall, it seems like you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's the Mecca for that kind of stuff. Yeah, so, right. right. So a, a couple, a couple podcasts back, we have, I, I was talking to a guy and he was getting ready to have a kid and, um, his, his kid was coming, his due date was November 1st. And he was a, a whitetail hunter here in the Midwest. And as we all know, the first two <laughs> weeks of November are the supreme time to hunt in the timber um, in the Midwest for the rut. And, uh, it sounds to me like you have planned, you have planned your pregnancy, uh, yes. you know, for the almost the optimal time for a Western hunter. Yeah. Well, I think, I think just about any type of hunting. I mean, really, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, and, and working in the hunting industry, planning everything around shows, um, you know, my wife was really awesome. We got married last summer. And uh, that was that was another one of the big things that I have kind of coming down the pipe is uh, we've got our first child coming. So um, so we talked about it and we planned around. My wife's a teacher, so she does have summers off. So uh, like a spring baby would have been would have been good, too. But uh, my wife wanted to get right after, you know, right (laughs) after getting getting to trying. And I said, well, we can't, you know. We can't have it arrive or, or have the planet arrive around, you know, any time in the fall. And that was, 
that was kind of my plan. And I know a lot of people that have trouble getting pregnant sometimes. Right. And uh, that was definitely not the case with us. So we uh, we got down to it. And I had actually miscalculated a little bit. My math was off. And my wife was really excited to, um, you know, she's, she's just stoked to be a mom. And I'm, I'm in the same position. But uh, I had said, you know, okay, so this is when we can start. And it was, you know, nine months after the, you know, the last month of hunting for what we were. And I miscalculated by one month. So, um, I had said, yeah, we can start. I, you know, I can't remember the month off the top of my head, but I, we can start here and you know, it, it's getting to be that time. And, you know, my wife's a teacher, she's a math teacher, she's into statistics and the science aspect of it. So she had these apps on her phone and, you know, she was, she was doing everything she could to, to learn her, her cycle and herself to make it easy for us to get pregnant. So she knew like when we needed to, you know, make it happen and everything. And that was, I mean, I got, I mean, she had, I mean, anything, anything you could think of, (laughs) anything you could think of, she had taken care of. And that month came around and I'm like, you know what, sweetie, I miscalculated <laughs> and, uh, this would be a November baby. And, and I, um, I, uh, you know, I, she, you know, she's like, you promised you, pro-, you know, back and forth, you know, one of those whole situations. And, and then, um, so she, she went to her school bag and she pulled out a, some three M post-its and she wrote a little note on it and put a line in it and put a little signature mark on that line. She says, and, and it basically stated that we will start trying next month, period. And she made me sign it and she <laughs> stuck it on the mirror in the bathroom. So, uh, um, and we still laugh about that. And <laughs> it, I mean, it's, it's funny. Um, we're, uh, you know, we, 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 you know, she had the timing down, she had the date down and, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I, I can't say that, you know, I'm like Superman when it comes to that stuff, but I think a lot of that was the planning on her part yeah, and the timing. I think that's what a lot of it is. So, but uh, yeah, first shot, I mean, it would have been, if, if we would have started that month that I had originally thought we were going to start trying, it would have been a November baby. And I, I do hunt the West primarily, but I I love getting up in a tree stand back uh, in Minnesota, right. Wisconsin, right. Indiana, Illinois, wherever I I might have an opportunity to hunt. So, right. um, so yeah, so it worked out. So we're doing December. Um, that's coming up here, and you know, the more and more I got to thinking about it, the more and more, like you had, you had mentioned earlier, the more optimum that is because yeah. next fall, you know, when when season starts. Our, our baby will be nine months old. So, right. and, and at that point walking, in time, probably sleeping through the night, all that stuff. Yep. So that's, that's using your head. I tell you what, um, I know guys out there who, you know, like you said, it, it took them a while to get, uh, a while to, you know, get pregnant. But I was in the same boat with you, with my two kids. She's like, I want to have a kid, boom, pregnant. And then she's like, I want to have another kid, boom, pregnant. And uh, then she's like, 
I wanted to have a third kid. And I was like, I'm never going to have a third child so you can find someone else to have it with because I, <laughs> two, two is too many. <laughs> yes. Keep you busy, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It must be the red beards. Yeah, I was going to say. Um, I was hanging out down in uh, in St. Louis. I just got back from St. Louis today. It's, uh, what is it, the 26th or 27th of yep. September? Yep. Um, I took a week's worth of work down there, so I flew down to St. Louis and, and worked an event. And um, we were I was I was working with a guy with a red beard, and it's there's not <laughs> there's not enough of us out there. I, mean, I know everybody I know that that's like that is is awesome. So I haven't I met anybody with a red beard I didn't like. So I I heard that, and this is based off of I don't know I can't I, I don't know where the where I can quote this from. But I heard that by in a hundred years or less than a hundred years, there the the red hair genetic will have been bred out of the human race. I've heard I've heard that too, but I've heard conflicting things too. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's kinda like one of those things you hear on the internet or you read on the internet. It's like yeah. mm-hmm. but <laughs> yeah, they say it's a recessive trait, but I know I know families that have no red hair in the mother or the father. And then they pop out a redheaded kid too. So, right. right. So my grandpa had not red hair, but like almost red hair, like Sandy blonde. And then from like me, my beard, my beard is, is like flaming red. And, uh, I know you got some red in you as well, but, uh, I think, I think, uh, I don't know something about guys with red hair. They're like, they're loyal. They're trust. Like if you get a flat tire, your buddy gets a flat tire. You can call, this guy and he'll come and help you change that tire. Yep. They might not have a soul, but they'll help you change it. <laughs> so, amen. Amen. <laughs> well, today we're not going to talk about gingers. We are going to talk about your successful year so far. Um and we t- we touched on it a little bit at the beginning of the uh of the podcast, but uh um why don't you talk to us maybe a little bit about your your summer, what your goals were for this year, and then maybe transition that right into your antelope hunt. Yeah, sure. Um, well, obviously, it was a hectic summer for me with the job change. So I was kind of all over the place with that. There were a lot of question marks that come along with that type of a situation. But uh, yeah, so, and I, I, you know, another thing to add to this season is I've picked up a recurve this year. Yeah, uh, I saw that. And... I mean, I, I, I think I, I took delivery of my recurve in January. Um, there's a, a boyer in town. It's RER recurves, uh, young couple brothers that, uh, have kind of taken over the company and, uh, they've become good friends of mine and, and they're, they're just great guys. So I thought I'll just, I'll go local. I'll go local with something. And, um, turns out they make a, pretty badass recurve too so i've yeah. really been enjoying that i've had my hands on now numerous brands and whatnot and i still haven't found one that i like as much as the the rer so to kind of go back to the hunting season and and start i thought well i'm gonna and i i started in this this spring i always go calendar year with my hunt so i do spring and fall and um i was able to hunt nebraska uh for turkeys and then my home state of montana and, uh, I was fortunate enough to take three turkeys 
um, with a recurve. Nice. And um, is that two in? Is can you get two in Nebraska or just one? Um, you can shoot three where I was. Oh um, wow! I purchased two tags, and unfortunately, we hit right on that. Uh, if anybody's hunted the Midwest, you know those open prairie birds that are in Nebraska. There's a phase where they go from feedlots, they go through a dispersal phase that lasts about two or three weeks, and then they hit like a heavy breeding phase and gobbling and stuff like that. Well, we hit that middle kind of time period, and it was the the hunting. I mean, the, the, the outfitter that we were with had to set up how to get out and run and gun, and obviously run and gun with a recurve is a little more difficult, but uh, I was able to capitalize. I used one of those heads-up decoys. With yeah. the turkey man, and I, I missed a bird at less than ten yards. Um, I shot one at four yards, and then I shot another one at about twelve yards. That it was all either spot and stock or purely decoy. You know, get in front of them and yeah, pop that decoy up, and and that was a a riot. And that was that was kind of my first my first taste of recurve action or or traditional bow action and. Uh, I into the fall here. I've just kind of kept the train going, I guess. Um, you know, I was super, super busy through the summer, so I hardly had any time to scout at all. I made it out a couple weekends. I, I set up a couple ground blinds for antelope in like mm-hmm. late, um, like late June, I think. Yeah, yeah. It was before even July because I knew I didn't have any time because I was going to be on the road working. So I set them up and. I came back in and, um, I had actually a, a friend of mine sit one of my blinds while I was out of town on opening weekend for antelope or opening week for antelope for us. And, um, he's also from the Midwest. It's actually the, the boyer that built my, uh, my recurve. He, he sat in like my prime blind. I set it 13 yards off this water tank, like just built for that shot. And yeah, he got into it, um, got impatient, got out. And when he got out, he bumped a buck, like literally open the door, step out. There's a buck coming in from a direction. <laughs> and he gets back in the blind, sits there for like another three hours, three and a half hours. He's like, you know what? I got to get back to work. I get back to the shop, gets out, bumps another couple. <laughs> like that's kind of how it went for him. And, uh, he ended up having some does with fawns and a, a one, like a year and a half old buck, like you could barely, barely had any horn at all. And he passed yeah. on those that come in. But so I, I was on the road and I got back, I think, you know, done traveling, uh, in August, um, around the 22nd or 23rd. And I, uh, you know, of course I immediately wanted to get out. And I mean, I hadn't missed an antelope opener in a number of years and, and I went out with a couple other friends of mine that were compound hunting and I set them up in one of my other blinds and, um, I went out and, you know, I glassed up on the hill, you know, it's, it's probably a mile and a half where you can kind of last see it. And I, I saw like the, the white spot in the sage kind of up and over around the hill from where my blind was. I'm like, Oh, you know, maybe that's an antelope. You know, I couldn't tell. You know, if it was a buck or if it was a doe or if it was even an animal, it could have been a, like a white rock. But 
I said to my buddies as we're pulling out of where we'd set up camp, I'm like, yeah, there's a, I think there's an antelope right around the hill from my blind. So I go up there, you know, park about a half mile away and I'm walking up and over this hill to get to it. I get to the blind, I unzip it. I put my bow in and, um, and then I unzip the roof to let all the flies and stuff that are trapped in it out of it. I don't know if you guys have ever antelope hunted, but they seem, those blinds seem to fill up with bugs. Yeah. And I open the roof up and I look out the roof and there's an antelope staring at me like 200 yards. <laughs> and it was, and it was in the direction where the, the one, so it was an antelope that I'd seen. I got the door open. I got the front of the blind open. Um, I got the roof open. And I got an antelope staring at me and I got half my stuff sitting outside the blind. So I'm like, crap. So that, that buck was bedded. He was bedded and that the roll of the hill, when he was bedded, he couldn't see me. Oh, nice. And all he had to do was stand up. So that's exactly what he did when he heard the, the rustling around. And so I, I just kind of quit moving around in the blind, just kind of peeked through a little crack in the roof and watched him. And I bet I watched him for a half an hour before he really did anything. And he would, he was looking at the blind and then he'd look away and, you know, and then he'd look again. And if anybody's ever hunted the antelope, they're very curious, especially if they don't know, they always want to know what's going on or what right. that is, right? what not. And he started kind of coming towards the blind and there was one little roll, a little swale that he had to go across where I'd lose sight of him. And, um, he's coming in and, uh, I'm like reaching outside the blind and grabbing my stuff as I'm kind of trying to keep an eye on him. So, cause if he goes like alert, like paying attention to me, I, I don't want to be moving at all. Right. And right. Uh, I got everything in the blind. I real quietly zip the zipper. Um, I had my, my dog with me too. Um, so I've got a bird dog, a, a wire hair pointing or fawn or like a German wire hairs. They look like that, that scruffy bird yep. dog look. Yep. And he's sitting in the blind and it's hot and, uh, you know, my wife's at work and I had a couple buddies and, and he's done blind sits before and he's, he's doing nothing. So, so I'm sitting there and then he, he walks into that swale and he kind of, I can see he's starting to kind of angle, not directly at me now. Now he's walking down the hill. So out the window, he's walking from left to right, you know, but I'm like, well, it's hot. Maybe he'll get thirsty. He's out of the swale. I settle in. And I'm sitting there and, uh, this year with the baby on the way, my wife wanted to make sure that she had constant contact. So I got one of those Garmin in reach or no, not Garmin, Delorme in reach. Okay. So like, like a satellite a sat phone. It's a satellite texting device and GPS. Okay. So I can text anywhere and we, we turned it on, we upped the plan to unlimited text and I've been able to text back and forth with her. So I'm like, all right, I'm gonna learn how to use this. Cause this is, this is like you know, I'm sitting in a blind, right? Right, right. So I might like, got I, some time to kill. Yeah, he's he's walked out of sight. He's still probably 200 yards away. I'm like, my wind is okay. He'll probably just rebed, and then when he gets thirsty here in the evening, he'll come in. You know, okay. so I'm I'm sitting there and uh, messing around, and I I still have the tone on for sending and receiving messages. <laughs> <laughs> my dog archer is laying in the in the space right in front of the window of the blind and um i'm just kind of messing around sending messages back and forth and 
I sent her a message. Yeah, there's a buck right up on the hill and she's excited to have me home and here, what do I do? I get home from working and I go hunting. So, yeah. Um, so she wants me, she's like, oh, you know, my fingers are crossed. I hope you shoot them so you can come home and hang out with me. Right. So, and, and she, she knows how passionate I am and she's very understanding, but I, you know, you still hear it and you know, it's, it's still, you want to be around, but it's like, yeah. this is the only time of year I can do that. So that's something that, you know, I'm always excited to get out, but it's always fun to, be able to be successful right away and right so i'm messaging back and forth and my my delorm is still making little beeps every time a message comes in and every time one goes out and they're they're real quiet but um um so i'm sitting there and i haven't checked in probably 10 or 15 minutes and the antelope buck walks between me and the water tank like Right as a message comes in, it goes, and he walks by, and as he's walking by, he's looking in the window, and his head is turning to look in the window of the blind the entire walk across, and I'm like, oh, crap. That's like an eight-yard shot. Yeah. (laughs) So my dog's in the blind, and, you know, I, I don't have my bow even anywhere near me. I mean, I have an arrow knocked and stuff. So he <clears throat> kind of walks past, and if you've ever seen antelope come into water, it's it's like the water is got alligators in it. Yeah, and they're jumpy and everything else. So he comes up, he starts drinking, and you know, snaps his head back up. You know, drinks like barely touches the water with his mouth, and his head's already back up, and he's staring at the blind because he swore he heard something. So how far is he now from the time that he walks in between you and the water and then the time he starts drinking? Yeah, he walks in between me and the blind probably less than 10 yards. And then he kind of does a little, you know, because the the tank is spilling out the downhill side. Yeah. So they he came on the uphill side and walked down around and then they drink out of the puddle that's below the, the water tank. Okay. So, so kind of to paint the picture, he's there and – Archer's kind of settling in and you ever see a dog do one of those stretchy sprawls and, and, and that's what, that's what my dog does. And he totally kicks the side of the blind. (laughs) And like, I think one of his legs go out underneath the lower edge of the blind and the antelope, you know, jumps up, you know, from, from basically just getting ready to drink and like does like two, three sixties and a backflip and runs 10 yards down the hill. (laughs) They're that jumpy. I mean, it's it's so yeah. funny to watch him do that. And and he uh, he 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 was content and getting water. So he and that gave me an opportunity to grab my bow and kind of get ready. And at this point in time, he heard something. Now my dog did. So my dog's like, "Oh, what was that?" You know, he wants to sit up, and I'm just like, "You stay laying down," you know. And uh, um, <clears throat> he's laying there, and. Uh, this antelope comes back in and he comes now he's coming in from downhill. So he stops. And when he's drinking, he's perfectly broadside just over the top of the water tank. When he puts his head down to drink, I can't see his head. So it's perfect because I got the sun coming in my blind too. And he goes to drink and he's, uh, he's basically, you know, 
like third time trying to get a drink and I'm, I'm now I'm in position and I've got to actually push the broadhead out of the blind before I can draw okay. to give me enough with the recurve. And so I push it out and he pulls up and now he's, he swears he saw something. So he's staring at me and my arm is up and it's just kind of the long version of the story. I hope we don't lose anybody through this, but, <laughs> um, he finally, you know, after about 45 seconds of sitting there, he goes back to drinking and I'm in position and I just kind of pull back and pick that spot and let her rip. And he ran down the hill about 40 yards, stopped, um, laid down for maybe a minute, got up, you know, tried to walk off or kind of stumble off. You know, you could tell he couldn't breathe and ended up falling over right there. So... So you got, he was kind of a, a quartering away shot through, did you get both lungs or maybe just one? Oh, it was a double lung, um, okay. but it was, it was back and it was low in the lungs. I gotcha. So, you know, when you hit an animal back and low, it's almost like they have just enough lung function to let them hang on for the, you know, a little longer, you know, whereas if yeah. you hit the lung, you center punch them. Yeah. They run as far as they can for eight seconds and they stop and then they're, they're flailing around. So, right. Right. So I have like a whole bunch of questions I need to ask you here. Um, and and kind of going back, you know, you live in Bozeman. How, how far from Bozeman are you going to antelope hunt? Is that in the Eastern side of the state or is it on public ground or are you on private land? What's the story there? Public. Um, okay. I won't get into where I hunt. Right, right, right. I give you an idea of you know Eastern where part of the state Eastern part of the state is probably okay. where ninety percent of the antelope population. Um, gotcha. Southeast um, is very good, and um, and that part I go I go about two and a half hours. I mean, we have antelope in the Gallatin Valley where I'm at in Bozeman here, but it's very very few, and then most of them are on private. So gotcha. I always tend to you know you get over into that Billings area, you travel north or east from that area, you know, out towards, you know, Miles City. I mean, there's antelope all over, over that way. Yeah. So, and that's, that's where most of my hunting takes place is when I, when I get out there, you know, I mean, there's, like I said, there's pockets here, there's pockets there, but, you know, Wyoming and, and Montana have really healthy populations out in that area. Mm-hmm. So, Right now, and that's, that's where I spend most of my time. Okay. So, you know, another question I wanted to ask you, um, I know you kind of cut your teeth with a recurve, uh, earlier this year on Turkey, but how hard was it? I mean, have you been, have you been shooting recurve for a while? Um, or was this like, you just decided, Hey, I'm going to start shooting a recurve this year to hunt. Or have you been, did you shoot recurve before no, that? Maybe I, just I for had, fun. I had one of like the old herders or, you know, one of the old kind of production style recurves. Yeah. Um, and I didn't, I didn't shoot it a lot. Um, I played around with it, but I, I, I didn't spend, you know, a ton of time with it. And I thought, yeah. you know, if, if you have something that's nice, I always feel like I have more pressure to use it, you know? So I thought, you know what, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to, I'm going to get a nice custom recurve from somebody and I'm going to play around with it and, and put time into it. At least that's kind of my mentality. You know, if you have a nice, 
you know, if I had a nice table saw, I'd probably want to build more things, you know what I mean? Or a nice, right. nice set of woodworking tools, stuff like that, where, you know, if you have just an older, it kind of helps ignite the fire, so to speak. Um, so yeah, so I, I bought the recurve and, and I, my plan wasn't necessarily to chase everything with it, but there's definitely scenarios where if I'm hunting in elk and thick cover where, you know, you talk to guys that hunt different parts of the country, some of the stuff is super thick, like Roosevelt hunting in the Cascades, you know, elk comes in to 20 yards. You're lucky if you see them, elk yeah. comes into 12 yards you might be able to see a little bit and at eight yards, you can see a third of their body. So that's kind of conducive to recurve hunting. And that was kind of my original plan. And with what I had put into it, I, I, I hadn't planned on hunting exclusively with it. And, you know, late in August, um, I, I had a compound bow that's, that's sighted in still. And, uh, I have my recurve that I, I really enjoy shooting. And between the two of them, I can go either way. Yeah. So, yeah. um, and that's, that's kind of the beauty of it is, is, you know, like with my elk hunting this year. So I had seen a bull that was my number one last year and I didn't know what to expect going into that. And I had about four or five days before Idaho opened that I could scout. Right. And just so happened that that bullet was my number one last year, made it through the season and, and survived the winter and made it through the summer and was bigger than he was the year before. So now I'm kind of conflicting. And I, I said to myself, you know, kind of changing gears and getting into my elk hunt and, and how that went. Um, I, uh, <clears throat> I had put time into scouting this animal for two years and I said, well, if I, if I know where he is and what he's doing, I'm gonna, I'm probably going to take my compound in cause I, I yeah. know it, not a novice at it. I, I know my limitations. I know, I know how much penetration I'm going to get. I know where to shoot an elk, where the recurve stuff a lot of stuff changes. There's a little bit more, you know, they're, they're, you're at much more of a disadvantage from a lot of that things. It's a lot more challenging. And, and I would hate to, you know, and, and I, you know, to put it, you know, in, in terms of trophy hunting versus not, I don't really consider myself a trophy hunter, but I like to target specific animals. Yeah. If the full characteristics in their rack or something notable, that's, that you can, you can see, you know, something unique. And a lot of times the biggest one is obviously the one you're after, but if there's a unique one, that one would be it. And, and it just so happens that you learn more about the animals when you're watching them. And, and that's, you know, I mean, I'm an opportunist as much as I am anything. So that's, and that's important I think for a lot of people to, to, to learn is I don't, I don't want to be labeled like a trophy hunter. Um, with my elk this year, the elk that came by happened to be the bull that I'd scouted for two years. If it would have right. been a, a five by five, I probably would have shot, you know? Yeah. He, he would have yeah. come by. I would have 
I have flung an arrow at him as much as anything in it. So, you so know, I mean, backing up, j- backing up just a bit, um, mm-hmm. the transition from the compound to the traditional, what, I mean, was it a big transition or, um, did it take a lot of time or was it something that kind of came naturally still? You know, I think, I think it came pretty natural. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's a different way to do things. It's, it's, it's a lot simpler. I love the simplicity of it. You're not thinking about, um, a peep site, your form as much here necessarily. It's, it's a more natural, you know, you kind of let your body take over and it's muscle memory. It's repetition. You know, and that, that happens with a compound, but there's all these mechanical advantages you put into the compound into things. And with that, it's, I mean, it blows me away that as long as you practice and you practice good practice with a recurve, it becomes more automatic or as automatic as a, you know, as a compound. So, I mean... I would say if, if uh, you know, if you, if you're a compound shooter and you want to get into traditional archery and I would say definitely do it, it's, it's gonna, I mean, it's, it's, it's more mindless. Yeah. Yeah. So no feel. there's, there's not near as much that, that takes place. Okay. You know, that's in the front of your mind. More of it takes place in the back of your mind, you know, right. and, 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 I've always used good practice is, is the way you get good at something. You know, you don't want to go out and if you're shooting poorly, try to shoot through it because all you're doing is, is you're ingraining that whatever that, that flaw that you're, you're shooting. Like if I go out and I shoot, I spray arrows all over the place, I'll just quit. Right. But if I'm shooting good, I'll keep shooting sometimes until I start shooting bad. And as soon as I start to deteriorate and, and what I consider good accuracy, I, I put it away. So, and does that kind of, that kind of answers that question, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now, now going back to this elk hunt, you mentioned that, you know, this is obviously a place that you've hunted, you know, several times before. Uh, I take it you, you knew where the elk were living. You kind of knew, um, you had experience with, this bull before, you know, cause you call them, you know, your number one bull from last year. Yep. Um, describe the area that this bull was living in and maybe compare his, you know, talk about his movement from the summertime. Cause I take it you went and scouted, right? You, you were scouting this area before the season started. I, I did. I did a little bit of scouting before the season started. Um, but I was only there for that brief period right before season. So like okay. the four days or the five days before season. Gotcha. Um, last year, I was able to scout through July and through August on weekends. And kind of I could basically in my, my memory, I could just say, okay, well, I saw him here once. I saw him here once. I saw him here once. So I had that summer kind of area figured out. Well, this bull, I mean, was living in close proximity to, you know, cows. So that's, okay. that's one of the, the big things that, that I take into consideration is it doesn't matter where they are in the summer. If there's no cows anywhere near them, they're not going to be there right. shortly after their hard horn. 
um, because the the proximity from Hardhorn to Rut is is very close. I mean, it's it's like three weeks. Yeah, you know, where with whitetails, I mean, whitetails are shedding their valve at mid September and they're not running till November. It's a little different. So you kind of look at that summer pattern. You know, velvet bulls are great if you find them, but if you don't have cows anywhere near them. And he had cows close proximity, and, you know, he was in bachelor groups and stuff like that. So so using that, I mean, you just kind of connect the dots, so to speak. And I almost feel like I learned more about his summer pattern or his, uh, his fall pattern this year than I did in years past, because in years past, it was like maybe two days before opener and I'd have an evening, a morning and an evening to scout beforehand. Well, this year I had more days to do that close proximity. So, you know, you basically get short amounts of activity early in the morning or, uh, late in the evening, you know, the, right. you know, they're crepuscular and their movement patterns, which means that they basically are a low light. They're not nocturnal a hundred percent, but they're not diurnal. Like I, I believe that term, that crepuscular term, you know, it associates with like white tails and mule deer where they're active in low light periods of the day, which is early morning. Gotcha. So, so what day, what day <clears throat> of the week or what day of the month did you kill this bull on? Um, I believe it was a Tuesday. Okay. So are we talking like the first couple days of the season? I mean, it was it pre-rut. No, it was, this is, this is, it was the second week of season. So the, I killed the bull in Idaho and, um, Idaho opens every year on the 30th of August. Okay. So you figure I was, right at the end of the second week of the season. So, so, um, so in, in that, in that second week, um, you know, toward, you said you, you killed it on a Tuesday. So that was probably the, uh, the sixth maybe of, of September. What were the, what was this bull doing, you know, that week, you know, where you, you know, you knew from, you know, previous years experience that this bull was in this drainage or on this slope or, you know, wherever he was at, um, were you going based off of annual, you know, annual information that he was going to be in this same spot, um, because he was in this same spot last year? Well, I, I figured that there were cows in the area. There weren't as many cows as there were last year. And that may be why, because I ended up killing him. Um, a couple basins from where I had, uh, scouted him. Okay. So, and, and that's, that's kind of part of the whole thing is, is, so we had, we had wolf interactions this year, a lot more than I have in the past. Um, and that of course affects movement patterns and where an animal goes and whatnot, where the cows go, everything. So, I mean, you got to take that into consideration and of course it's public land. So there's, there's a lot of hunting pressure and the amount of hunting pressure in a given area is also going to have an effect. And I, I actually lost, I, I was, I, I didn't know where he was, you know, after about the first seven days of season, okay. because that, that, that first seven days is what I would call, you know, in this particular case, that's kind of like the pre-rut. Okay. That's kind of, you know, 
comparable to like your Halloween week time frame with whitetails, where they're still kind of fairly patternable in regard to, you know, like, you know, like a home range. Yeah. But at any given point in time, they're very unpredictable where they're going to be someplace. Gotcha. You know, so they start establishing a territory. They start moving around trying to figure out where the does are, you know, the whitetail aspect. And in the, in the, in the elk world, they're, they're doing the same thing. So, um, sometimes the, the, the herds have gathered cows. I mean, last year I shot my bull in Idaho on opening day and there was 35 or 40 cows that had two or three bulls kind of engrossed and kind of circling the herd. There was bugling going on like crazy. This year was about as far from that as, as you can get. Okay. No bugling. So, so there was no bugling. Um, you said you lost him. Um, yeah, so I, so how, and I, how I you... say lost him. I, I, I hadn't seen him in about four or five days. So, okay. and, and now to scout and look for him, I've got to go way up high on a, on a ridge where I can't really, I, I mean, I'm not hunting. I mean, right. it's, I carried my bow with me cause it was open season and you never know what's going to happen. But I was so far removed from being able to just slip in. You know, because I'm glassing from, you know, close to a mile away. Right, right. So, so how did you end up locating this this <clears throat> bull again? Just through glassing, and then if so, you know, what was your game plan to to say, okay, now I got him, now I know where he's going to be. What was that final move into, uh, you know, the actual harvesting of him? Well, and, and I'll paint the picture for you. You know, like I had said earlier, I, I had planned on if I knew I was going in on this bull, I was going to probably bring my compound because I didn't want that opportunity to slip away because of limited range. You know, I mean, with elk, uh, they're a big target. I mean, I'm not going to shoot with my recurve more than I, I hadn't planned on shooting more than about 25 or 30 yards. That was my max. Right. With my compound, you know, compounds are a lot better at maintaining and making energy in your arrow penetration and and I'll, i mean I'll, I'll push past that 30 to 40 yard mark you know provided the the situation is right and the and the existing conditions are conducive to it you know and right. an animal that's not alarmed feeding or just kind of hanging out you can get drawn back and you know loose an arrow um you know 50 55 60 yards is is kind of where i'm comfortable to on a lot okay. of that stuff so so to paint the picture, now we're, we're into like that 10th and, and beyond of September. So we're starting to hear a little bit more talking. And, and like I said, I'm an opportunist. If I'm not going to put all my eggs in one basket, I'm going to go after whatever. So I had actually found a bull that was, you know, two or three basins from where I'd originally scouted, you know, this bigger bull that I was after. And uh, we got on him one night and it didn't didn't work out. My cousin was up there with me. He's from Minnesota, and he didn't have um, a lot of the. Uh, you know, he wanted to hunt a different area, and he wanted to have opportunity for himself. So he's like, "Well, you go after that one, and I'll go over here where these other ones are." So he wasn't with me with me, but he was with me in camp. So, so I get down in on this bull. I, I hunt him one evening and I get down above him. I get him bugling 
you know, by, by sounding off myself with a bugle and he's just trying to keep his cows together and act tough. And I got out ahead of him and I actually overshot where I thought they were going to kind of come out across this, this open flat. And, uh, they came out underneath me. So without bumping them or anything like that, I backed out and I said, well, I'll come back in in the morning and I'll catch them diving back into that spot, you know, where, where I just watched them come out of from a bedding area. Right. So the the cows are kind of running the show. The bull is still pushing them around and stuff like that. And as long as there's not too much other pressure from other elk, other bull elk, you know, that bull will just follow the cows around. Right. Right. You know, might nudge them here, nudge them there, but the cows kind of still have say on, on where they go in my experience. So, so I'm like, he's a small bull. He was a little six point, like a 260 class, you know, from a score standpoint, probably like a first year six. You know, this is his first year having, you know, being a six point. So, okay. But, uh, so I, I go back out, uh, the next morning with the recurve. And, uh, I'm like, all right, I'm going to catch these guys. I got way out ahead of them on this ridge that they kind of go out on and they're coming off of this big open side hill and they come down and they cross the bottom of the the drainage and they work up into a bedding area. And, uh, so I'm, uh, kind of in position and I start to hear some bugles and I'm like, all right, he's bugling. I I bugled back a couple times just to kind of get him fired up and kind of ornery seeing what what level of attitude he had that morning and he was he was getting pissed and then I heard another bugle from up on the trail um and at this point in time I kind of shake my head and I'm like you know fairly disgusted and kind of angry about it because I'm not I'm not far I'm not terribly far off of a an established forest service trail so no, it's it's other hunters use it too. So, and I'm like, wow, this this loudmouth now has got this other guy fired up. And the first couple times I heard it go off and bugle, I was like, yeah, that's a hunter. That's totally right. a hunter. And uh, <clears throat> I'm watching the bull from the. I'm on a timbered side hill, and he's out on a open sage side hill. So I'm finding little holes in the timber that I can look out across. And he's moving back and forth and. I can tell he's starting to get pissed off because he's getting bugled back and forth, you know, and, um, and then I see him kind of start to head the direction that these bugles are coming from. And then I, I swear in my head, I'm like, God, he's going to run back out in the open. He's going to have a big red spot on his side. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm just going to have to hike back out of here and go back to a different game plan. So, and sure enough, he worked over out of sight where I couldn't keep him in an opening. And, um, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes pass. And then he comes back out into the open and, you know, rakes a tree in the open and walks over back into his herd of cows and about six or eight cows with him. So I'm like, cool. Maybe it wasn't hunters. Okay. And now this, this, or maybe, maybe they screwed it up, you know, whatever. Well, this bull that I, well, I think it's a hunters and it's actually a bull starts coming down the ridge and he starts doing some pretty good rips as far as his bugle goes. Like there's only a handful 
couple of guys I know that can bugle that good. Yeah. And uh, I'm like, maybe it's maybe it's an elk, you know. And uh, <clears throat> I'm like, well, if it's an elk, I'm in a perfect position to be. So I'm just going to continue with my plan to hunt this bull across, hoping that he'll push his cows down. And they're probably 300 yards across this draw for me. Okay. So they have to drop on about 150 feet on this open sage hill. And there's a couple really good spots to cross that I was right above. And then they come up onto this north face and they bed. So right. um, so I'm sitting here. I'm kind of waiting and listening. And these bugles are starting to get closer. And um, if, if anybody's ever hunted elk and heard elk run through the woods, they know how noisy they can be. And they make a really kind of unique noise like a, a their hooves as they're running it's probably similar to like a deer bounding off that hollow noise that you sound yeah, that you hear yeah. like boom, uh, boom. so I, I heard that i heard that like a, a group of animals moving quickly you know against the ground and and then i saw a little flicker of brown and it was like an ear and then the top of a head and it was out and around you know, I'm looking downhill around this little roll to my right. I'm like, oh, crap, it's, it's it's elk. So at this point in time, I was kind of reluctant to say it was an elk for sure. But now I'm like, okay, it wasn't hunters. It's an elk. You know, there, there's those are the cows. The bull's going to be with them. <clears throat> so I immediately pull an arrow out of my quiver, knock it. And they're just, just down the hill from me. And I'm in an old growth forest. Um big trees not a lot of deadfall you know it's like perfect for hiking through and stuff like that it's it's steep but it's open you know it's open undergrowth there's a lot of undergrowth so so i knock an arrow and as these cows start kind of coming more into view i'm like oh you know they're gonna be close i'm like this might happen you know and i'm like i don't know what he's gonna be i don't know if he's gonna be a raghorn if he's gonna be a five by five whatever i'm like if he's close enough to shoot i'm gonna shoot him so so i let the lead cow come by on the trail and let her get past me and then i real slowly pulled out my range finder and i ranged like the third or fourth cow that came by there were some calves mixed in as well and, and they're all are the, you how far are you from these these cows they're they're like 27 28 yards okay um and it's it's probably 20 degrees downhill and as the hill as the further down you go, the steeper it gets. So there's a little bit of a roll to the hill. So I can see from about their that first knuckle in their leg up yeah. on these animals. And they're filing by. They're all on the exact same game trail. It's not like they're mixed right. through the through the woods. So <clears throat> they start filing by, and about the sixth or seventh one, I'm like, all right, he's gonna he's gonna pop out. So that's about the maximum of my recurve range. Okay. I have my recurve because I brought my recurve because I thought I was hunting this, this 260 six point, this little six point. I didn't, I wasn't planning on running into this bull, but when you're hunting in proximity to those, those drainages that he's, he was in originally, I mean, it's, it's nothing for those animals to jump over one. And we had wolves, like I had said, and hunting pressure and any one of those things could have just bumped him over the hill and, across the saddle into the next drainage and i think that's what happened so he uh and he ended up coming out and i didn't realize it was him but i heard a bugle before he came into sight and i'm like oh man this is just gonna be just a raghorn 
like drooling, snot all over the place, yeah. just all fired up because it didn't sound like this big ominous bugle. So, and then he, he stepped kind of out into the open. He jumped a log and he's walking and, and I'm like, Oh, big six, you know, big, big bull, big bull. And I'm like, shooter for sure. And I, I was in position. I had an arrow knocked and he walked and my, my reed in my mouth. Cause I'd had it in my mouth. I'd been standing within the vicinity of where I was for over an hour. Hadn't moved just waiting for this bull across for me to drop down and come onto my side of the hill to bed. And, uh, this bull just kind of pushes his cows by me and they're bugling back and forth. And, and he, he walks into my opening that I'd ranged the cow at. And I let out the worst sounding cow call you could ever make. <laughs> my, my reed that was in my mouth, I'd been chewing on it for like an hour, kind of bored, waiting for something to happen. And, um, he stopped though. And that's all that matters. That's all I had to have him do was stop. And he stopped. And by the time I cow called, I had already started kind of my draw and anchor, you know, steps and, yep. you know, let the arrow go. And, and then when I saw the arrow go and hit, I kind of cringed a little bit. Um, the hit was a little bit low and a little bit forward. Okay. Um, which isn't bad as long as you get the penetration because you're into that big heavy leg pull and everything. And, um, it hit probably four or five inches above where that elbow is when their front leg is straight. Okay. Um, and he immediately turned and I saw the orange fletching kind of, you know, not necessarily disappear, but I saw it. That was the last point that I saw it at. Okay. And he turned and he ran straight down the hill and I didn't notice an arrow sticking out of him or anything. And, I was kind of nervous because it was low and forward and I just started listening. I let out a couple quick cow calls real, real fast and, and then nothing silence. And then a kind of a, a medium crash, you know, and I don't know if that was him continuing down the hill or, or what. And then I heard another really loud crash from about the same distance and, and I'm like, that was either really good or that was him hitting the bottom of the draw in a brush pile and then bouncing up and continuing on. And yeah. I went down to where the arrow the arrow was hit. And I'm shooting 260 grains of insert and tip weight in the front of okay. my shaft. And on the, I think on the impact, I got penetration up to my wrap. And then I think he was in the process of kind of dropping to react on the shot. Right. And he basically like scissored that arrow shaft off right there. Right. Which is funny because the fletching and everything didn't have hardly anything on him or the wrap, but the rest of the arrow went completely through him. Oh, really? So it woke off completely through him. And I think that's due to that extra weight that I had in that tip. Okay. Um, you know, I'm, it's a, it's a, I'm shooting a 340 spine arrow, which is, what most guys shoot for, for compounds, yeah. but to get that spine correct on a, on a traditional bow, you have to put a lot of weight up front and a lot of weight does a lot to help in regards to, you know, wind drift. And there's a lot of, a lot of pros to having that, that front of center is important. Right. Um, yeah. So it was there and that was, that was just drenched in blood. 
you know, dark, dark red blood. I mean, there wasn't a lot of bubbles or anything to, to make me think, you know, double lung for sure. But, uh, um, and then I started looking and I mean, there was blood, good blood trail the whole way down. And I, you know, I hadn't waited hardly anything at all. And hearing those crashes, I I knew he'd either gone all the way to the bottom. So I thought, well, I'm going to walk down this. Yeah, I'll I'll walk down this about 100 yards and just see. And I got down about 60, 70 yards from where the the initial hit was. And he was was laying upside down, feet in the air, with about a 9-inch diameter log laid across him. And that was the crash that I'd heard. Yeah. And that, when I looked, and I'm like... Holy crap! It's 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 my number one. It's that that yeah. bull that I wanted to that I was after, right? And I was I was like, no way that that just happened. <laughs> so, I mean, from a from a storytelling standpoint, I mean, it's everybody likes to hear. Oh, I I, I watched him all summer, and then I I snuck up on him, and um. You know, I killed him. No, I, this pretty much, I, I pretty much knew that he was up there, lost him, had moved on to other animals. And he just happened to be the first one that walked by me, you know? <laughs> so, so, I mean, not everything is pretty how it happens, right? Right, right. So he must have, that, that uh, younger six by six, you said that was kind of following those cows. This bull must have bumped him off or that was a satellite bull that maybe got a little too close. No, no. The, the night before that little six point was the only bull there. Oh, okay. So over the night, there was a second bull in there talking. He could have been in there and just been quiet. Right. Um, there's a couple things that kind of in my mind could have happened. I think one of them, the, the, the big bull that I killed could have moved in overnight with the vocalizations of the other bull kind of drawing him in. Mm-hmm. And that that the smaller bull had about ten or twelve cows. Okay. Uh, the night before, well, when he was walking across the side of the hill, he only had four. Okay. You know, four or five. So the bull that I shot could have, you know, because there there hadn't been a lot of vocalization throughout the entire season up until this point. I mean, this was the first super active bull that I had heard. Right. Um. So I think this bull heard the bugles came in was peeling off his cows without inciting a, a fight. Gotcha. You know, the gotcha. smarter bull, you know, that I feel like a lot of people think those older bulls, what they'll do is they'll let the little bulls gather up all the cows and then they'll just come and they'll just kind of, ah, I'm going to take half these and go over here. You know, yeah. they, gotcha. they know that, they're smart enough. They're old enough. They have a big enough rack. To, I mean, at any given point in time, they can kick the butt of this animal. But why go through the the work and effort to do that? I mean, that's like that's like your your second and third year sixes will will do that and want to fight. Where the I think the bigger animals will just come in, make themselves, make their presence known, and then go do you Literally. know peel off. Right. So, so I guess. When you, what was, what were kind of your emotions? What were you, what were you feeling and thinking when you realized, Hey, this is the buck I wanted all along? You know, um, it's, 
it's awesome at at first. I mean, there's there's always there's always positives and negatives to anything. I mean, when that when you don't connect, when you don't get that animal, um, there's always that hope that he's still there, that you can yeah. continue to hunt him, pursue him. I mean, there's there's always a little bit of remorse. I mean, I felt I felt the the high of highs. But then I felt the low of lows. I'm like, well, now what the hell am I going to do? <laughs> and I've had, I've had this conversation with, you know, several friends here over the course of the last couple of weeks. And it's like, you know, if, if, if I judged my, all my hunting on the size of the rack, I mean, and, you know, the, the epicness of, the, of killing an animal, you know, with the recurve and stuff like that, it's like, I really don't have much to look forward to from here on out, you know? I mean, I don't think I'll, I'll ever shoot a bull that big again. Now, um, from a, a score-wise, from a score-wise, and I'm, I'm pretty green to what makes a, a bull elk big, but what was the, did you happen to measure this bull at all? Yeah. Um, he ended up grossing, and this is just a rough score. Um, I've scored a lot of animals. I mean, I'm not an expert but I know how to read instructions on the score sheets and know where to score from. I don't right, right. score from inside the beam all the way out and around the tine. But, uh, and we did it on a, on a, a Boone and Crockett app. So it did all the math for us. So I, I, I didn't screw up any math either, but he grosses three seventy seven and six eighths. Yeah. And that number is something I never, ever thought I would ever attain. And it's, that's all it is. It's a number, and it's. Right. Um, I've I've never entered animals. I've never, you know, I don't even necessarily enjoy, you know, bragging about it from the standpoint of score. I mean, it's just right. a just a cool experience for me, and to be able to look at him and you know, if if somebody wants to know that number to compare it to something else or or something like that, that's really I mean, right. obvious. So right. So now. <clears throat> The question is, I saw another picture of him. You got the head skinned out. Are are you going to do uh, a Euro mount or a full shoulder mount? I'm going to do just a Euro. Just a uh, Euro? Okay. Yeah. And I thought about it. It was funny. I, I texted my wife with my my sat phone um, from the field. I, I, she's always like the first one that I reach out to when I'm successful. And I sent her a message and I, I said, what do you think of – shoulder mounts shoulder mounted elk <laughs> and you know i mean she's she knows i'm always up to screwing around and trying to trick her and everything and she's like is that code <laughs> you got one and i'm like yeah but i think shortly after that um i i kind of in my mind i decided you know i i really like the europeans and yeah. you know all the elk that i have now are all european and you know, I mean, it's it's one of those things I kind of talk to myself out of. Potentially, I, I'd always told myself if I shoot something over three fifty, I'm gonna I'm gonna have it, you know, shoulder mount done. Right. Well, I talked myself out of it. I said, you know what, I'm gonna have to move this elk. I'm sure down the line and everything else, storing it. I don't have room for it. I want to be able to look at it and enjoy it. And if I get a Euro mount done, number one, it's cost. 
is going to be right. part of it. Because, you know, with a baby on the way, there's all kinds of expenses that I'm going to have to be worrying about and stuff like that. So I didn't want to spend the money on a taxidermist. And the, the taxidermist that uh, that I'd use is two states away. So yeah. um, then you get into driving or shipping or doing something like that. And, Price goes and, up, bend up, bend up. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, it, it's never ending. So so I just right. decided to do a European. And I, I told myself, I'm like, you know what? It's going to look the same. It does... You know, when I finish the European, as it will, twenty-five years from now, you know, the okay. mount, mount won't deteriorate. You know, I mean, once you have it, once it's bone and it's cleaned right, it, it's it's not uh, it's not going to change. So um, that's that was kind of my mentality on it, and it was, and p- part of it was I didn't want to pack out the the cape because the cape and the, the skull and everything is. And I had my, we had our work cut out for us as it was. It took me and my cousin two days to get everything out. And I added another trip. Yeah. Another trip to the, um, you know, so, so that's, that's, um, that's kind of what I ended up doing. So. Perfect. Well, I tell you what, uh, Number one, congratulations. I mean, that's one, one hell of an animal, one hell of a story. Um, you know, you're having uh, one hell of a year and I take it if, are, are you still planning on, uh, I mean, what, what else are you planning on doing this year? Well, um, I just flew back into town today from Missouri. Um, right. My dad just, he just got into town today and he's got a Montana elk tag. I still have my Montana elk tag. Oh boy. I have. I don't have much as far as planning plans to necessarily try to stick one myself, but I'm going to, I'm going to do some scouting. I actually have a new area that I can hunt this year. That's in a different part of the state that I may spend some time in through the end of the season here. Right. Right. My priority this next week is going to be for my dad. And then I've got, uh, um, a South Dakota mule deer hunt. And then I haven't, picked i haven't decided on where i'm gonna head um in the midwest this year for white tails but it's either indiana illinois or possibly minnesota and i have an opportunity to go to wisconsin too but it's all going to be based on the amount of time i have but so and then i have a eastern montana that i'll hunt for mule deer with my dad as well later in the year so oh, nice nice well, it sounds like uh, you're off to one hell of a season, and you got your uh, schedule pretty much full for the rest of the uh, the 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 year. And uh, I guess also congratulations on the upcoming kid. Do you know what it, you know what it's going to be? I do. Yeah, it's, it's we're having a boy. Oh, congrats! So, so that's going to be exciting. Um, and yeah, you know, I'm going to get a bunch in this year, and we'll see we'll see how much time I'll spend next year. I mean, I. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm not sure. I'm not, it, it'll be a, it'll be a, the first season for me next year with having kids and, and whatnot. So it, I'm, I know things will probably change as far as the amount of time I spend, but <laughs> they will. the cool thing about it is my wife is awesome about it and she loves being up there too. And, uh, um, she, uh, we may end up bringing, um, bringing the, the new guy up there next year a little bit here and there on weekends and stuff and 
and uh you know so he can learn to enjoy it and appreciate it too right so yep it's now your responsibility to pass on that uh that to him so uh that'll be just as fun yep definitely all right man well good luck the rest of the season and uh thank you very much for coming on the show hey not a problem thanks for having me it's always a pleasure uh chatting with you it's uh it's a lot of fun dan thanks and there you have it, another podcast in the books. Uh, thanks, Ben, for coming on the show and uh, catching up with us. Good luck the rest of the season. Uh, good luck to all the listeners, and a big thank you to you guys for uh, tuning in and uh, making this podcast possible. Uh, also, huge shout-out to Exodus Outdoor Gear, and uh, like I've already said, go check out their trail cameras at exodusoutdoorgear.com. Also, huge shout-out to Deer Lab. Uh, if you guys want to find out more information about Deer Lab software and uh, maybe get a free 30-day trial, go to DeerLab.com backslash Nine Fingers. And uh, because you guys are a listener of this podcast, they're throwing on an extra 20 days. So you're getting a total of 30 days on your free trial period. Uh, I, I strongly suggest go going there, signing up for the free trial, and... Uh, logging all your trail camera pictures and it might be able to help you uh, do some forecasting for deer movement this upcoming year all right instagram twitter uh facebook you know check (laughs) check those out uh i just got done eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and i'm drinking a goose urban wheat ale 312 it's pretty good beer i suggest that as well and, and I suggest peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but peanut butter and jelly sandwiches are not a sponsor. That's my personal opinion. I just like those sandwiches. And, uh, you know, opening day is re- coming up for me really fast. Uh, I've already started to get the, um, I, I'm tossing and turning. I'm trying to think about what direction the wind's going to be for my first hunt. So I'm trying to plan where I want to hunt for that opening day, uh, that opening sit for me. Um, I'll be wearing my safety harness, and uh, I hope you guys do too. So get your head out of your ass and wear your damn safety harness. Have a good week. <laughs>